All right, if we can come back to order. Now, if you're following the handout, we have reached the final Greek expression in the prologue to which I direct your attention, and that's the word exegesito, which is also in verse 18 and is translated by your English versions as explained or revealed or declared. Exegesito is the Greek word from which we derive the term exegesis. It means to draw out the meaning, to interpret, to explain. Exegesis, then, is the process of drawing out the meaning of the text. The Greek text, the Hebrew text primarily, the English text derivatively. Now, you will notice from verse 18 that the son of the father exegetes the father draws out the meaning of the Father. And how can he do this? Because he is an eternal person exegeting an eternal person. Who more qualified to show us the Father than the eternal Son of the eternal Father who has known him from all eternity. And if our exegesis is to be true to the revealed exegesis, we must begin with the one who exegetes God the Father to us. We must begin with the Son of God. We cannot begin our exegesis with felt needs. We cannot begin our exegesis with identifying the needs of the congregation. We cannot begin our exegesis with the culture so that we can speak to the culture. We must begin our exegesis with Christ, the Son of God, because that's where John begins. That's where the entire Bible begins. And then we must proceed with our exegesis centered upon Christ, the Son of God. We must not yield from our exegesis so as to topically apply our exegesis to cultural current relevance. 
we must begin, we must proceed, we must conclude our exegesis with Christ, the Son of God. Our exegesis must match the Son of God's exegesis. It must be theocentric, God-centered. It must be Christocentric, Christ-centered. He has explained all. All that we need to know for salvation. All that we need to know for eternal life. Christocentric exegesis that it may be soteriological exegesis unto eschatological exegesis. John 1.19 and the exegesis begins. John 1.19 to John 21.25 is the exegesis of the Father by the one who is in his bosom. The prologue introduces the exegetical themes. The body of the gospel supplies the detailed exegesis. John 1.19 inaugurates the narrative poetics summarily anticipated in the prologue. For like a medieval Latin in Chippet, here begins... John 1.19 is the inception of the body of John's story of Jesus. This cosmological tale of the panoramic prologue now becomes more concrete, revealed in its historical detail. Biblical theology is anchored in history. That is one reason biblical theology is sometimes called the history of redemption, the redemptive historical method. Redemptive historical history of redemption biblical theology is good stuff in the hands of Orthodox Reformed believers. Redemptive historical history of redemption biblical theology is not the tool of the devil as we are sometimes charged. We believe the Bible, every infallible letter and word of it. We believe in the ontological trinity. We believe the creeds. We believe the system of doctrine in the Reformed confessions. We believe God reveals himself in history redemptively. We profess to be fully orthodox, fully reformed, fully biblical in our biblical theology, our redemptive historical approach. So we profess So we believe, so I vow before Almighty God that I am. Please listen to what we say and to what we believe. Do not caricature us. 
do not misrepresent us. Do not turn us into the bad guys for the sake of your agenda. John's concrete, historical, indeed redemptive historical exegesis of the father-son relationship begins with John the Baptist. But the witness of the Baptist, exegetical of the one greater than he, the witness of the Baptist provokes scrutinization provokes interrogation. From Jerusalem, verse 19, the Pharisees, verse 24, dispatch priests and Levites down the hot, dusty descent east of Jerusalem they come. Across the waters of the Jordan they come. To the east bank they come. To Bethany beyond the Jordan, verse 28, they come. Bethany beyond the Jordan. A place still unidentified by historian, geographer, and archaeologist. But a real place beyond the Jordan. Trans-Jordan on the east bank. The recent suggestion that Bethany here is Batanea or Old Testament Bashan is, in my opinion, not likely. You will notice from your map handouts, the upper left-hand map, number 221, you will see Batanea in the upper right corner of that map. That is where Old Testament Bashan was located. And I'm not impressed by the suggestion that John was baptizing in that region. This is not likely, in my opinion, in terms of the dispatching of the priests and Levites from Jerusalem to the other side of the Jordan. Bashan, Batania is much too far northeast, in my opinion, for a bevy of investigators from Jerusalem. Besides, notice, John the Baptist would locate his ministry closer to the Jordan River, opposite Jericho, as the other map suggests, number 229, closer to Jericho, where redemptive, History echoes and re-echoes from Joshua to Elijah and Elisha, all of whom came across Jordan near Jericho. Who are you? Verse 19. Are you? Verse 20. Who are you? Verse 22. What do you? Verse 22. Why are you? Verse 25. Relentless inquisitors. 
pressing, demanding, pursuing. These probing interrogators breathe an air of tension into the story of the Baptist. They come from the Jews, priests and Levites, a cadre portending the central dramatic conflict in the plot of this gospel. The harbinger of the Son of God encounters the harbingers of those who will plot the death of the Son of God. In John 1, 19-28, we have a microcosm, a microcosm of the plot structure of the gospel as a whole. In John 1, 19-28, we have inaugurated the exegesis of the statements in the prologue. He came to his own, and they received him not. But to as many as received him, the shift in scene from the regions of eternity in 118 to the regions around Bethany beyond the Jordan in 119 marks the beginning of a new section of the gospel. Between verses 19 and 51 of chapter 1, there are subsequent shifts which divide this section into four smaller units. Some suggest the shift markers are temporal changes in time, and they point to verses 29, 35, and 43, each of which begins the next day, te eporion in Greek. That gives us four smaller units coincident with four successive days. Day one, verses 19 to 28. Day two, verses 29 to 34. Day three, verses 35 to 42. Day 4, verses 43 to 51. In my opinion, the four subunits are correctly numbered. There are four, but they are not correctly delineated. Now, as your handout indicates, I am suggesting two larger units composed of two smaller subunits each. Think of my proposal as a play, a play in two acts, with each act composed of two scenes. Act 1, the appearance and witness of John the Baptist, verses 19 to 36. Act 2, the call and witness of the disciples, verses 37 to 51. In Act 1... John the Baptist, no disciples of Jesus. In Act 2, no John the Baptist, disciples of Jesus. That is one reason for my disagreement with the temporal division. In John the Baptist, we find a transitional figure a transitional figure. 
He is the last prophet of the Jewish era. He is the transitional bridge between the Old Testament and the New. In John the Baptist, an era is passing away. After John the Baptist, a new era is being inaugurated. Thus, the shifts here in 119 to 51 are shifts in redemptive historical fulfillment. The old is being replaced by the new. The age of anticipation and promise is giving way to the new age of completion and fulfillment. The age of those who pose as inquisitors is giving way to the age of those who are confessors, professors. John the Apostle records here two scenes with the last Old Testament prophet reflecting on the old Israel. And John records here two scenes with the eschatological prophet and the formation of the new Israel. Act 1, scene 1, verses 19 to 28, describes who is not and what is not. It is the negation of the era steeped in Are you the theocratic warrior Christ Messiah? I am not. Are you the return of the fiery, thundering prophet Elijah who will precede the theocratic incineration of the enemies of God? I am not. Are you the prophet Moses-like who comes to reestablish theocratic Israel? I am not. Not a theocratic Messiah, not a theocratic Elijah, not a theocratic prophet like Moses. Not, not, not. That era is negated thrice over. I stand in negation of that era, in the place where that era was inaugurated in failure. I stand in the wilderness, verse 23, crying for a new exodus, a new sojourn in the wilderness, a new era marked by one better than Moses, better than the anointed David, better than Elijah. I stand in the place of the old Israel's wilderness beginning crying for a new and better passage through the waters, crying for the inauguration of what I did not even at first recognize, an era of sojourn in the Holy Spirit. I stand in the wilderness crying, This one is Son of God, verse 34. And His baptism 
His baptism, why my paltry baptism, my paltry water baptism is as nothing. His baptism is what abides on Him, what remains on Him, what is permanently joined to Him, so that if one receives Him, if one receives Him, one receives what is on Him. Holy Spirit baptism. The Holy Spirit remains, abides on Him. Whoever remains, abides in Him, remains, abides in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Do you get it? Without a second blessing. John got it. He saw it on Jesus. That anyone in Jesus has it because it abides in Jesus. It abides in anyone who is in Jesus. These two scenes of Act One are fraught with Exodus imagery, wilderness setting, passage through the waters. Paschal or Passover lamb, son of God. Remember that in Exodus 4, Exodus 4, 22 and 23, the old Israel is called God's son. Let my son go, says God. These scenes in John's Gospel are an instance of redemptive historic recapitulation. Jesus recapitulates the redemptive history of Israel by reliving it. He comes to the wilderness. He passes through the waters. He is summed up as a Passover lamb. He is Son of God. But in reliving the redemptive history of Israel, Jesus fulfills it. He completes it. He finishes the history of Israel in His living it out unto recapitulation. Because, because Jesus is not for Israel alone. He is for more than Israel. More than Palestine more than the Jews, more than Jerusalem and Judea. This new Israel, Jesus Christ, this eschatological Israel, Jesus Christ, this once and for all Israel, Jesus Christ is for the world, verse 29. He is for Jew and Gentile alike. He is the bringer of spirit baptism to the nations. He is ending the wilderness sojourn of Palestine so that he can make pilgrims of men and women from every nation, tribe, and tongue under heaven. He is the end of the old Israel according to the flesh, for he is the new Israel of God in power and the Spirit. And in joining you to his new and eschatological exodus, 
He has called you sons of God and daughters of God. He has set you free, free at last in his eschatological exodus for an eschatological washing to an eschatological pilgrimage unto an eschatological land and all through the blood of the eschatological lamb. John the Baptist appears in Act 1, scenes 1 and 2 of John's narrative drama to show you what he is not. To show you what he is not and to bear witness. To bear witness to what, to who Jesus is. Where will you stand? Where will you stand? In the old era which is passing away? Or will you attempt to bring back the old era which has already passed away? Or will you stand steadily gazing, behold the Lamb of God? Will you stand in the new era with Jesus bathed in the Holy Spirit, set free from the bondage of your sin by this surpassing Lamb, rejoicing, yes, dancing for joy that the bridegroom has come. And you, you are His wedding guest at a never-ending wedding feast. John did. Will you stand with John and say goodbye to the old because the bridegroom has come? Surely you will stand, you must stand with John the Baptist and confess, I am history. I am history. He is the whole story. His story, the only story. The story of the fullness of the history of redemption. And praise His name, His story is our story. Now the second section of this chapter. Verses 37 to 51 falls into two additional subunits or scenes, as does Act 1. Verses 37 to 42, the call and witness of Andrew and Peter and the unnamed disciple whom I take to be the Apostle John, the beloved disciple himself. You will notice that the unnamed disciple is in the picture if you compare verse 35 with verse 40. And then verses 43 to 51, scene 2, act 2, the call and witness 
of Philip and Nathanael. Now, in an act in which disciples are being called unto Jesus, we would expect to find one of the key words in discipleship used over and over again, and so we do. A light verter, a keyword, in verses 37, 38, 40, and 43, akolutheo, follow me. Follow me. It is the mark of the new Israel. It is the distinctive mark which distinguishes between the old and the new Israel. But the old Israel follow Torah. Would they follow Nevi'im? Would they follow Ketuvim? Or would they follow Jesus? Will they follow Jesus? Then the old Israel will pass away as the new Israel, the new twelve, the new twelve disciples, nucleus of the eschatological Israel, the new twelve follow Jesus. And so John repeats the key word as he emphasizes these scenes of the calling of the disciples to distinguish once again that former era which is now passing away from the age of discipleship following after being conformed unto dying and rising again with Jesus. That is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Following Jesus also involves knowing Jesus. We accept no professions of faith in the Reformed Church without knowledge. Knowledge is not all, but knowledge is an important part. We also want to see love for Jesus and faithfulness to Jesus, obedience to his word. But discipleship involves knowing who Jesus is. I am not, says John the Baptist. I am not, says John the Baptist. I am not. Thou art the Son of God. Thou art Ravi. Thou art Mashiach. Thou art Nabi, thou art Melech Israel, thou art 
Bar Nahash. Thou art the Son of God. Thou art the teacher, the rabbi. Thou art the Christ, the Messiah. Thou art the prophet, the Navi. Thou art the King of Israel, the Melech Israel. Thou art the Son of Man, Bar Nahash. Do you see what John is doing here? He is telling you what disciples do. Disciples confess Jesus with the titles appropriate to his confession. They confess who he is. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. He is the Rabbi, the Teacher. He is the Messiah. He is the Prophet. He is the King of Israel. He is the Son of Man. Where will you find in any part of the New Testament a plethora of Christological titles packed into a narrative? You will not. The density of these Christological confessions is intentional here. Because Jesus is all of those things in contrast to that which has passed away in his fulfilling all those things. He is the Lamb of God because he is the eschatological Lamb. I have suggested Passover Lamb imagery, but it is broader than that. He is the Lamb who puts an end to all lambs, all sacrificial lambs, all Passover lambs, all lambs of vicarious atonement in Isaiah 53. He fulfills all the vicarious atoning lambs of the former era. There are no more lambs after Jesus. No, there will not be lambs on a millennial temple down the street from Jesus sitting on his millennial throne. That is a blasphemy. He is the last lamb. He has completed. Did he not say it is finished? He has completed the lamb sacrifices forever. They are done. They will never return. Or you are saying, he did not pay it all. Do it all. Oh, make your distinction between expiatory and commemorative. That is nonsense. That is utter Old Testament nonsense. Behold, the Lamb of God. After His Lamb sacrifice on that tree, you need no other Lamb. Christina Rossetti, thank you. None other Lamb. Why would you long for another sheep when the great shepherd of the sheep has laid his life down once and for all?
He is the Son of God, verse 34. He is the eschatological Son. He is the once and for all Son of God. As Skeets asked in his question, Psalm 2-7, Dark my son, this day I have begotten thee. And the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7-14, all the anticipatory son relationships of the Old Testament are completed, finalized. They are completely filled up in this son. He is son eternally. He is son eschatologically. Verse 38, he is the rabbi. He is the teacher. Did his disciples not call him master? Did they not call him the teacher? And yet this one is sought out by Nicodemus, a teacher in Israel, because this teacher is the final teacher. He is the eschatological teacher of the people of God who by his spirit draws them into the wonder of his truth. No more rabbis after Rabbi Jesus. No. No more. He is the teacher. He is Messiah, Mashiach in Hebrew, He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the eschatologically anointed one. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. He comes with the anointing of heaven. He is the final messianic figure. All after him are false pretenders. There will be no new Messiah. We have beheld His glory already. And the Messianic age is upon us now. He is the prophet. Verse 45. This is a reference to Deuteronomy 18.18, in which Moses projects a prophet like unto himself, but a prophet who will surpass even Moses. An eschatological prophet, Jesus is confessed to be the last prophet. How we in the Reformed movement love this confession. For he is prophet, and in verse 49, he is king. He is king of Israel. He is the eschatological king. He is king and prophet and priest. But he is also, verse 51, son of man. From Daniel 7, 13 and 14, he is the eschatological man who rides upon the clouds of glory. You see, he is not only identified with the former history of Israel. He is identified with the history of man. For he is Bar 
Adam, son of Adam. He is son of man coming from heaven so that in him humanity has been recreated. A new Adam. An eschatos Adam to steal Paul's language. An eschatological Adam and those joined to him are part of that new creation, new humanity, new Adamic world. For he, the Son of Man, is their head. And he has drawn their sinful humanity into union with his sinless humanity. And he has called them his children. Children of the man from heaven. Now these Christological titles are the surpassing confessions and professions of the first followers of Jesus. Can you and I do less than follow in their train? Jesus, I am following you as the Lamb of God, as the Son of God, as my Rabbi, the Messiah, the Prophet, the King of Israel, the Son of Man. I am following you, Jesus, believing Loving you as my Lamb, my Son of God, my Messiah, my Prophet, my King, my Teacher, my Son of Man. You are mine, Lord Jesus. And as Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel confessed and embraced you, I confess and embrace you as my Lord, Savior. For I, Lord Jesus, am your disciple. Oh, Lord Jesus, pour out, pour out your blood upon me as my lamb. Lord Jesus, pour out your royal authority. Rule me as king of my life. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, pour out your teaching upon me as my rabbi. Lord Jesus, pour out your prophetic word upon me that I may understand. Lord Jesus, you have given me a name, Son of God, Child of God. Lord Jesus, love me as your child. Now this begins in the contrast between the scenes with the Jewish representatives of that era which is passing away. 
and these representatives. Not all the disciples are listed here, you will notice. It is a selected call narrative. But they are emblematic of that new Israel which will endure until he comes. And verse 51, verse 51 with its ladder, with its ladder image, with its Jacob's ladder image from Genesis 28, where Jesus says, I am the ladder. I am the bridge between heaven and earth. I am the eschatological ladder. And I open to you heaven itself. A ladder of open access to heaven's glory. Jacob dreamed the theophany. Jesus is the theophany. Here is the incarnation. Here is the incarnation which unites heaven and earth, God and man, and opens wide, opens wide the door of intercommunion between the two arenas, between heaven and earth. Jacob dreamed it. Jesus embodies it. Jesus, the eschatological Israel, is the ladder. He is the ladder between man and God. No one climbs up unto the Father but by Him. Nor does the Father by the Spirit come down to any man save through the Son. This cap of this section in verse 51 is a virtual transformation of the theophonic images dreamed by Jacob at Bethel, gate of God, so long ago. For Jesus is the ladder and the gate and the open highway into the Holy of Holies where the Father will spread His glory cloud over His sons and daughters. And they shall weep no more. For they shall see Him as He is. And they will reign forever and ever. That's the end of my comments for the evening. Once again, I'll be happy to take any questions or remarks that you may have. David? Um, in the passage, uh, the call of these particular disciples, they, they identify the Lord Jesus 
church in the fire. Um, but we have the interrogation of uh, the disciples and the particular Peter's. We have some heated men tonight, right? And we hear the responses, and then we ask Peter to speak about it. And he says, no, it's right. And of course, most of you say, it does not reveal to you by men, but uh, it divinely reveals. Um, but yet here in this passage, these disciples are called, and they're fine quickly Yes. The, the comment is, whereas it seems to come later in Matthew 16, for instance, in John's Gospel, it's very early where the disciples confess Jesus as the Christ. And it comes to them by some way which is not revealed in the text, but nonetheless is clear to them. Does the full significance of it dawn upon them? No, I do not think so, because we come to the end of this gospel in chapter 20 with the resurrection, the post-resurrection appearances, where there are still doubting Thomases. And that is true, the disciples' portrait throughout the synoptic gospels as well as the fourth gospel. What they get, they grasp, shall we say, uh, in principle, they don't grasp it in its fullness. They're a little dumb like we are, and it comes on them more gradually as they move through the story to the post-resurrection experience. But that is what's so crucial about the resurrection appearances. That's what's so crucial about the resurrection. It is the resurrection that transforms faith in Christ. It transforms the believers in Christ. It confirms all that they've seen and heard and now ratifies them in believing in him because he is the risen uh, glorified Son of God. So uh, we, we must understand that there's an element of, shall we say, Easter faith being anticipated here, and it's going to come back to uh, fill itself in with a fullness which may not necessarily be here from the beginning. Even Simon Peter in Matthew 16 can deny Jesus later on at his trial, so though he can confess him with his marvelous acknowledgement that he is the Christ, the Son of God, he turns around and says he doesn't know him. There's this inconsistency. Now, that's a great consolation to us, who as sinners, even as discipled sinners, are inconsistent. But uh, the point is, they do grasp it. Okay? How it's given to them, I can't answer. Whether it's a direct revelation, whether it's something in the way Jesus approached them, whether it was something just in the way John the Baptist's disciples approached them, whether it was something they had heard, I can't explain. The fact that John acknowledges it and declares it here at the beginning is him choosing these acknowledgments in order to set the scene for the Christological confessions which are going to snowball down through the rest of the gospel. In other words, it's anticipatory, but it is actual as well. David? Grasping less than anticipatory, I suppose, and misunderstand what I 
They're not consistent. That is correct. Uh, the observation is that what is in Luke 24, when Jesus talks about his fulfilling the law and the prophets and the writings on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, we have that placed at the beginning here in John 1:45, where Moses and the law and the prophets are pointing to Jesus of Nazareth. That, of course, is his claim from beginning to end. But John places it at the beginning as if, once again, to anticipate what he's going to unpack or uh, show more completely as the gospel unfolds. Very good observation. Thank you. Yes, Lorna? They are still one God with respect to their divine being. Okay? Even when they are one God before the incarnation, they are distinct but not separate persons. If you remember the phrase that Tertullian, the church father, gives to the church at the end of the second, beginning of the third century, distinct but not separate, so that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. He's a distinct person. He is with, he is alongside of God the Father. But the word was God. So we're defining in the last phrase, the word was God, his essential, his essence, his being. The Greek word is usia, or substantia in Latin, his essential substance, his godness. Okay? But we are also noting in that second phrase, the word was with God, his distinction from the Father as a person. He has a personal center of consciousness, which is Son. The Father has a personal center of consciousness, which is Father. That is not Son. The Holy Spirit has a personal sense of consciousness, which is Holy Spirit, neither Father nor Son. That's what your Athanasian Creed was saying. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is begotten. Uh, neither made nor created but begotten, the Son of the Holy Spirit is neither made nor created but proceeds. So we, we have these distinct persons in this one divine substance, which is undivided. Right? Now, how can they be one in substance, three in distinction? All right, that is a mystery beyond our finite comprehension. But that is the only way to justify the Bible's language. That's the only way the church down to the ages has been able to put those two things together. The Father is God, the Son of God, the Holy Spirit is God, but these are not three gods, this is one God. And yet the Father is not the Son, is not the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father, is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, not the Son. So how do we put this data together? All right. The church says divine substance, oneness, Divine personality, threeness, distinct person, but not separate persons. Does that help? All right. Now, you may, not, you may not be able to push beyond that, and that's fine. Just stay where you are. If you grasp that distinction, you'll never have any ultimate problem with the Trinity. If you start prying beyond that, you may end up doing what Aquinas once said, well, what was God doing before he uh, created the world? He was making hell for impious minds like yours. The doctrine of the Trinity is a great challenge. Uh, it's amazing to me uh, that the average Christian doesn't really grasp it, though they confess it. Now, you can confess it without having to know all the details. I, I'm not uh, minimizing that. But there is a way for you to reach a point of intellectual satisfaction about what it is. The Athanasian Creed is very helpful in that regard. 
and the books that I uh, indicated are very helpful in that regard, or taking courses in the Trinity at Northwest Theological Seminary are very helpful in that regard. Was there, were, was there any other comment or question? Yes, Ling? Yes, I, I cannot assign that to an Old Testament passage or to an Old Testament proof text. I have a big question mark in my notes about that as far as Old Testament precedent. Uh, I would say it may be attached to the teaching role of a prophet. However, I can't demonstrate that by looking at a specific passage. I don't want to say it merely arises from the intertestamental period. It definitely is an honorific title of the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew, that is this time in between the testaments. <clears throat> but I, I don't want to attribute the, uh, the term from that era being attached to Christ uh, uh, because, you know, that, that brings some other difficulties. But nonetheless, I can't give you an Old Testament proof text for it. Go ahead. That's a good observation. Uh, the, the point is, since a teacher doesn't appear in the Old Testament as a proof text, can it be a kind of uh, <clears throat> collage or uh, 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 summary of the wisdom office or the, the wisdom concept in the Old Testament? That's, that's a worthy consideration. Certainly worth as good an certainly worth being as much right as my not giving you a proof text is not right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Next week we'll look at John two.